according to a recent Barna survey of American adults have said that in the last year they have had a substantial uh, break in a relationship or relationship strain with someone who is close to them. And 42% are lying. (laughs) Now, the 58% is from Barna. The other analysis, that's uh, Caleb Campbell Research and Associates. So, but, but seriously, right, over the last year, we, we look at what, uh, what has been happening, especially over the last year, for many of us, of course, before that as well and continuing on till now, we see that there are relationship fractures. And so uh, what we've been talking about in this series is how it is that by the power of God, by the power of the resurrected Christ and His Spirit moving within us, how is it that we can step into those broken relationships and, and bring that resurrection power to see those relationships by the power of God mended. How do we see those relationships mended? And one of the things that we said last week, I want to reiterate this week, is the closer the relationship or the deeper the wound, the more likely it is that we're going to need help in mending that relationship. The more likely it is that we're going to need someone outside of the, the two or, or multiple parties where the rift has taken place. We're going to need a, a coach or a pastor. We're going to need a counselor. We're going to need a mediator. We're going to need a ministry, what, whatever it is. And I just want to, again, reaffirm, as a church family, whatever it is that Jesus is calling you as it, as it relates to taking those next steps and mending relationships, we want to be a help to you in whatever way we can be. And one of the ways uh, that we uh, are, are, are investing in you is to invest in uh, marriage relationships. And so um, just real quick, for those of you that are married, there's this thing that people do in churches sometimes where if they agree with something or they recognize the need of something that's said is they say amen. So I just want to cue you up. What, what's the word? Okay, so uh, one of the things that's coming up is this, uh, we've got a four-week, we've got a couple of these actually starting in the next couple months, uh, and it's a four-week workshop called Renew the Vow. Renew the Vow. Now, Renew the Vow is uh, designed to help people who are married or who are thinking about marriage uh, to develop the skills and tools uh, to have a healthy and flourishing uh, marriage relationship. And, and they're going to they're gonna give to, they're going to receive tools like things like uh, conflict resolution. How to move forward when there's misunderstanding. Even how to mend broken relationships. And so there are many of us maybe who are saying right now, you know, Caleb, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about getting married or maybe uh, we're engaged or maybe I'm just wondering, to, will today be the day that he proposes? Uh, others of us have been married for quite some time. There, there's a lot of us who may even be saying, you know, our marriage is in a pretty good place. That's a great time to invest in your marriage. And I'll tell you why. At least in my experience, when my wife and I are in a rough patch, which has happened twice in the last few years, uh, week, and when, when we're in a rough spot and we try to invest in our marriage by learning the tools and, and, and the resources that are needed, it, it just goes a lot slower and it's a lot more difficult, mainly because we're kind of thinking through like, you're talking the wrong one, Right? You know, you're sitting there with your spouse and you're at the marriage seminar and you just keep like doing this, right? When things are in a good space, that's a, 
That's the best place to invest in your marriage so that when you hit those rough patches, you are equipped and ready to more quickly find uh, mending and apply mending to the relationship. So I just want to encourage you, if you'd like to know more, you can text the word hello to the number that you see up here on the screens, or for those of you that are watching online, it's like right here, I think. And uh, we will send you information on how you can register. We've got a a group. Again, these are four weeks. Uh, We've got a group starting in April and one starting in May. I highly recommend uh, signing up for Renew the Vow. Now, uh, today we're going to look at uh, specifically um, how it is that the Scriptures can guide us in taking uh, seriously our role in mending broken relationships, our role in mending broken relationships. And this is a multifaceted part. Uh, And so for the duration of this series, we're going to each week give you different tools uh, to be able to apply in those broken spaces. But today in particular, we're going to look at our role or our posture in the healing of those broken relationships. And I'd like to start with talking to you about communion. And everyone said, of course. Right? Of, of course. <laughs> of course we're going to talk about communion. Now, most of us are thinking, what does communion have to do with uh, our role in mending broken relationships? I'm glad you asked. It's such a great question. Let's take a look. So, uh, for starters, communion is the, is the act of remembering. Remembering the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. Communion is an act of remembering uh, Good Friday and Easter. It's an act of remembering. It's a physical drama, so to speak, where we're going to act out and we're going to remember. But it's also an act of recognizing our communion with God and our communion with one another. It's about union, our union with God. And also the reason we do it together is because of our union with one another. In fact, in the earliest uh, years of the church, after Jesus rose from the grave and he called his people to follow him, and he said, as you're following me, you're also uh, to be with one another. And so Jesus set up his church as a bunch of misfits bound together by nothing more than the love and grace of God made known to us through Jesus Christ. And these misfits from all different socioeconomic uh, uh, classes, from all different uh, uh, places, all different spaces, all different beliefs, all different political views, all different ethnicities, they would be brought together, in, and generally it was within homes, the first uh, few uh, uh, years of the church, they would be brought together and they would sit around a table. This is a, a, a painting that we have from the fourth century depicting the gathering together of the church. They would, generally speaking, not gather like this in a bunch of seats faced forward, they would generally, as part of their normal exercise of their faith, they would come together and sit at table. And as a centerpiece of that meal was what we call communion, the breaking of bread and the sharing of the fruit of the vine, which, whether it be wine or juice. And it would be part of a bigger meal. And so uh, I'm, I'm really glad that, especially in the era of COVID, that we have these things available, these hermetically sealed they're 1974. They produced all of them, I think. Uh, I'm pretty sure the juice has become fermented. I don't, I can't, I don't know, but um, right? I'm, I'm glad for these. But this, when we take communion this way, with the, when, we, when we peel back the cellophane symphony and we take that communion together, that is a, it's, I mean, listen, I wish we could set up tables in here, but somebody bolted in the seats. So we're trying to figure it out. In fact, the last thing we did before COVID is we had a church-wide communion service out on the lawn where we shared a meal together because we're, to, we're trying to find ways as a church family to get back to looking instead of everyone facing forward, looking at some crazy man yell, it's we're looking at each other and listening to the other crazy person talk and sometimes yell. 
But they would take communion together as part of a meal. And they're at the coming to the table, right? When they would come to the table, it was an act of union, not only with the Lord, but also with one another. Because who you ate with was who was welcome into your community. And in fact, it was one of the primary ways that the church lived out Jesus' straight-up command to be unified. Jesus recognized that within himself, within Within God, uh, there's this theological term called the Trinity. And it's this mind-blowing reality that God is three in one. He's one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus recognized that within that triunity, triune God, that there was this deep, intimate, uh, uh, everlasting union with one another. And Jesus prayed that just as he and the Father were one, so too you and I would be unified. Unity with one another within the church, within our homes, for Jesus' followers, was a constant refrain for Jesus. So frequent that the early church put at its centerpiece this dramatic living out of that union. But what happens when there's division? And there is, on occasion, within marriages, within families, and within church families, on once in a while, there can maybe be division. And the church said, amen. Paul, pastor, this dude named Paul, is a, he's, he, converted, he, he was not a Jesus follower, then he converted, he turned from his sin, repented and believed the gospel, and, and he became a pastor. And he's, Pastor Paul is writing to this church in a place called Corinth. And this is what he says. Again, remembering that Jesus called for us to be one, to be unified, he says this. Right at the opening of his letter to this church in Corinth, he says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say and that there would be no... No divisions among you. That word for division is schisma, which is where we get the word schism or schism. And there is no greater schism in this world than between people who pronounce it schism and schism. And then ne'er the two shall meet. But at the Lord's table, schism and schism can be united. Friends? There be no divisions among you <laughs> that you would be, what's the word? With the same understanding and the same What? The same conviction. Now, that doesn't mean that they all shared the same views on all the things, right? I'm sure Jethro liked this version of olive, of olive oil with his bread, and Sally didn't. Sharing the same conviction, what Paul is saying, sharing the deepest core beliefs. Hmm? This isn't all like the same music. This is that you would be unified with your chorus, your, your, your chorus convictions. <laughs> that is not a word, I think. But you guys aren't going to look it up, so let's keep going. <laughs> For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, narcs, that there is, <laughs> there is rivalry among you. What does that mean? That there's divisions among you. Now watch how Paul, Pastor Paul, spells out the divisions. Watch this. I think this is so crucial to our understanding of what it means to be unified. He says, what I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, the dude writing the letter. Or I to Apollos, who is another kind of like a famous pastor. Or I 
to Cephas. Cephas is uh, another way to say the word Peter, who was uh, one of the first Jesus followers, actually. Or I, and this is the self-righteous crowd, I, to Christ, right? You guys like all these other guys. I like Jesus the most, right? Notice what he's saying. You have separated yourselves into factions based on what rule of measurement? Based on who you what? Belong to. Could you imagine a society or any cultural moment where people are divided over a human that they claim allegiance to? Like, you've got that person's bumper sticker, and I will have nothing to do with you. So, here we see Paul getting right to it. What do you do when there is these schisms, these schisms between you, and the schisms are around, the divisions are around where your allegiance lies? That's why he's saying, I want you to have at your corest conviction unity, right? It's okay to like Apollos. It's okay to like Paul. It's okay to like Cephas or Peter. But you belong to someone more powerful. You see, when we say, I follow Jesus, our ultimate, actually the word faith, uh, oftentimes in your New Testament could also be translated as allegiance. I'm going to have an allegiance to Jesus. And therefore, because I claim with other Jesus followers a common allegiance to him ultimately, then in our differences, we can find the power to be unified, even though we have different preferences. And maybe if some of our secondary convictions are, in fact, that secondary, we can find unity because our corest conviction is an allegiance to Jesus. Do you see what he's saying? You see, in, in okay, um, I'm going to do a thing, and, and we're just going to do it. Um, a, a pastor... Uh, that I, that I kind of keep up with. And I'm, I'm still trying to process through this because I, I know that there's, I, I want to be fair. I want to be fair with this, okay? Is that, is that fair? And, and I want to be cautious, but, I, but it is so thought-provoking to me. I've been, I've been really wrestling with it for the last couple months. He said this, over the last year, I've noticed people leaving their church because it doesn't align with their partisan affiliation. But I'm wondering how many people have left their partisan affiliation because it doesn't line up with their church. And I have really been, like that hit me like a a punch to the gut. Because my temptation and tendency is to listen to you and all your nonsense beliefs, right? Which is everything in which we disagree. And my temptation is to be like, see ya, I'm going to go form a church that's just me and mine. Because I don't like hearing people having different opinions, because it might mean that I might have to change mine. I don't want to do that. That's dumb. You see, when we share the corest conviction, when we center ourselves on the resurrected Christ, we don't break up into groups and say, I belong to this person, I belong to this person. Friends, we belong to Jesus. Which means if we can start there, there is a way forward. As painful as it might be, there is a way forward. Okay, let's keep going. So, What Paul is doing here is he's pointing out this division. And for many of us, we don't like it when people point out sin in our lives, do we? How many of you, when a friend speaks their opinion on where you're wrong, how many of you say, friend, thank you for that gift. I 
love you more now in this moment than I've ever loved you before because you have brought this truth to my... No, we don't respond. Where do we respond? That's dumb. <laughs> You're dumb. Or, or, thou shalt not judge. Right? Every time I say that to my wife, she just gives me the look. It doesn't work. It hasn't worked. What do we do when we're accused? Have you ever been accused? Now, I get it, right? I mean, there are times where we get accused of something that, that's totally off base. And I'm there with you, right? I'm not talking about every situation, especially in abusive relationships, especially when there's a huge age differential when we're talking about children. Like, I, I am not at all trying to say that every circumstance is the same. And there are many times where, where we get accused of something that's like way off base and the person's totally misdiagnosed. It. But there's also a lot of times where there's at least a kernel of truth in what the person has pointed out. So what do we do when the, when the problem is raised? And I just want to encourage you, right? Paul is raising a problem. He's saying there are divisions among you. You guys are doing this. You're saying my allegiance is to this person, this person, this person. So what do we do? Especially if we don't necessarily agree with them, which in my case has been almost every time initially someone has brought something for me to consider to change about myself. Initially, my initial response generally is, I don't, I don't agree with that. But then after I meditated on it for a while, it's like, yeah, all right. What do we do? If someone comes to us with a problem, I want to encourage you in this. Even if I can't see the problem, even if I don't understand the problem, even if I don't think there is a problem, if someone I love says to me there's a problem, what? There is a problem. Now, they may be misdiagnosing it, right? They may be totally biffing it. But if they say there's a problem, because the unity that Jesus proclaims, if they say there's a problem, even if they're misdiagnosing it, if they say there's a problem, there's, there's what? A problem. And I'm going to step into that space with humility and say, okay, let's see if we can figure out what the problem is. Because maybe the problem's me, not likely, but maybe it is. Probably totally with you, and you're just mis I'm sorry, and this is the worst apology ever. I'm sorry you misunderstood, which is an ac accusation, not an apology, right? Even if I can't see the problem, even if I don't understand the problem, even if I think there is no problem, if someone I love says there's a problem, what? There's a problem. I'm going to step in humility and see if we can figure out how to reconcile the relationship. Now, um, uh, you guys already know this. Uh, 2020 was an apocalypse, right? D did you guys know that? 2020 is an apocalypse. Now, now, for most of us, when we say the word apocalypse, we think zombies and end of the world stuff. That's not what the word apocalypse means. In the scriptures, the word apocalypse does not mean end of the world, everything's on fire, zombies. Apocalypse means unveiling. Uh, you guys know when you watch your favorite, um, uh, like, British uh, old-timey TV shows with, like, wealthy people? Is everyone doing that, by the way? I don't know. My, I, some people in my house like that. D downtown, downtown Alley, what is it? Downton Abbey, right. Okay, so, right, so the butler comes in, they've prepared the filet, and, and the British person's sitting there quite smug, and uh, sorry, British people in the room. Um, so, uh, right, the, 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 the butler comes in, and, uh, hello, sir, and, 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 and the meal, the filet is underneath a what? Anyone know the name of that? Somebody, yeah, dome. Somebody told it to me first hour, I've completely forgot. So we're just going to call it the silvery thing on the top. And when they bring the meal, they do this. That is an apocalypse. An apocalypse is an unveiling. Did the removal of the domey thing make the meal? No. What did it do? It revealed the meal. 2020 was an apocalypse. I've heard a lot of people say, 
that, that these things have created so much division. I think sometimes that's true. I think most of the time what it's done is it's unveiled the division. Now, most of us are not having this at our meals. But many of us maybe perhaps are familiar with the removal of carpet. Have you guys ever seen carpet removed or removed it yourself in a house? Have you guys ever seen that happen? Right, you're sick and tired of the carpet, and it's time to remove the carpet, and you're going to put something nice down. Maybe some of us are still rocking that shag green carpet. I don't know. might be time to rethink your choices. But, but right, you, you, you have the carpet, and, and you, 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 you cut it, and then you, you take it up. What inevitably do you see when you remove the carpet? What has happened to the concrete? Let's see. Fractures. There are divisions in my foundation. Now, I've been told by architectural type minds that that's a normal thing, so don't freak out. However, that doesn't make a healthy sermon illustration. So look (laughs) at all the division. Now, did the removal of the carpet create the division? What did it do? What did it do? Right? It revealed the division. Now, thanks be to God. And I'll tell you why. I know that the apocalypses that happen in our life are painful. It's not at all enjoyable. But we cannot heal broken spaces in our life until those broken spaces are revealed to us. The first step in any mending of any broken relationship is that both parties see that there's a problem. If only one party sees that there's a problem, you won't be able to move forward. Some of you are nudging someone next to you right now. Right? Both parties, whether or not it's being accurately diagnosed, both parties have to look and recognize there is a problem. There's a division between us. Okay, let's keep going. Paul continues. Now, in giving this instruction, I do, this is in uh, chapter 11, verse 17 and on, so later in the letter. In giving you this instruction, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Remember, they're coming together at the communion table, not for good, but for, for brokenness. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, and again, this is to take communion together. Remember, communion was the centerpiece of their gatherings. There are what? Have you guys ever heard that one of the things that Jesus prayed for uh, most profoundly was that his people would be unified? And here, Pastor Paul is saying, you're not living in alignment with Jesus' prayer for you. That's why he starts his letter saying, don't be divided. And now he says, I'm flummoxed because there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Okay, now we're going to press pause. We're going to jump ahead. But there's this really, really important part. I mean, the whole thing hangs on it. You guys have to remind me, okay? We're going to come back to it in just a few minutes. Are you guys going to remind me? Like, seriously, the whole message hangs on this one portion of Scripture. We cannot forget to talk about it, okay? So, like, for reals, for reals, you got to remember to remind me. Are you going to remind me? Okay, let's keep going. This This is great. Okay, what do I do when I realize that there is division? Check this out. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup, he's talking about taking communion, of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin. Against the body and the blood of the Lord. Notice what he's doing here. I love this. Pastor Paul is saying, when you are coming together at communion, an act that is supposed to uh, uh, 
showcase our union with God and our union with one another, when you come to that space in a way that denigrates the people around the table, that, that, that marginalizes the people at the table, specifically the people that you don't like, when you come together to engage in that act of union with one another and you do it in that way, it's an unworthy manner and you're drinking judgment onto yourself. That's strong medicine, friends. And I ain't about to be up in here trying to make that lighter. Jesus so cares about unity within his church that he, he, that he empowers through the Spirit, Pastor Paul, to say when you take that unifying act in a way that is corrupt and which marginalizes the other, when you're harboring resentment in your heart, when you're harboring a division in your heart, you take it in an unworthy manner, you sit, you're guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let's keep going. Many of us are saying, let's not. Let a person. Okay, so what is the answer? Here we go. Let a person do what? Let them examine themselves in this way. Let each of them drink, eat the bread and drink from the cup in this way, that they examine themselves. When we take communion, it is an excellent opportunity for us to examine ourselves. In fact, I, I would argue that one of, the, one of the best spiritual disciplines to practice daily is self-examination. Especially when those accusations come in. Instead of posturing up, instead of putting up our dukes, Self-examination. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, that is, recognizing the body of believers, recognizing that all ground is equal at the foot of the cross, recognizing that we're family, eats and drinks judgment on themselves. This is why, now this, is, this, this blows my mind, this is why many of you are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. Paul, Paul is attributing some of the sickness that's being uh, seen Within the church, he attributes some of that to the fact that they're doing communion in an unworthy way. To put it another way, that they are disunified. Now, if, if some of us are sitting there going, I don't know about this. I mean, I just can't theologically wrap my mind around it and that just is difficulty. Hey, listen, I'm there with you. But I'm going to let Scripture speak. And we're just going to deal with it. He goes on. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. Again, this gets back to self-examination. I think Paul is so uh, exhausted in the fact that he is having to say this, that he says, listen, don't, if you don't judge yourselves, someone else has to come in and do that for you. I would rather that you would just judge yourself, just self-examine yourself. So I don't, Pastor Paul, so I don't have to write the letter. But in as much as it is, he's writing the letter. So he keeps going. If we uh, properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. Notice he doesn't say condemned. The judgment of the Lord that comes to us, whether it be by the power of the Spirit convicting us in the moment or the power of the Spirit using someone else's words to bring conviction, it's discipline, it's not condemnation. When that goes on, you have to hear me on this. When you recognize, I think I'm, I think I'm celebrating communion in a way in which is corrupt. I think I'm disunified with the church. What comes next is not the Lord's condemnation, it's his discipline, and the Lord disciplines those that he loves. Right? Never in this is the Lord condemning us because we've, we've become disunified. What he's saying, what Pastor Paul is saying is, come back to the table, and you're welcome anytime. And you're not condemned for the fact that there's been disunity at the table, but there may need to be some discipline. And here's our options when it comes to discipline in godly ways. Either we self-examine and bring self-discipline, or God does it for us. 
I like option one better. But more frequently in my life, it's been option two. And the crazy thing is God oftentimes uses other people near to me to do that option two. Okay, uh, let's keep going. So what do I do? What do we do when the accusation comes, right or wrong, right? Their capacity to self-analyze or to analyze me may be right or wrong. Their capacity to assess the situation may be right or wrong. But when the accusation comes, here are my options, at least as far as I could tell. Uh, there's option one, which when someone says, hey, you're this, right? Fill in whatever term you want. You're greedy. You're selfish. You're apathetic. You're a fascist. You're a Marxist. You're a leader with a Luciferian spirit. These are all things that have been said about me. That was all in one week. I was like, two of these don't even work together. Like, you can't do, okay. Right? What do we do? So, so, we can, so option one is this. You learn this on the playground. You are this. You did this. I know you are, but what am I? It is, right, shielding up and then hurling accusations back at the person. Right? I don't like accusations being thrown at me. So in order to shut you up, I'm going to put my shield up and I'm going to look back at you and say, aha, but you also are a sinner, so how dare you come and talk to me? That's option one. I know you are, but what am I? Option two, no, I'm not. Now, I want to be very cautious here. You might be right, right? People have said things about me. People have said things about you. You've said things about me and I've said things about you that may or may not be right, that are probably misguided that are probably misdiagnosing the problem. Hmm? By the way, welcome to church. <laughs> and maybe, right, if someone says to me, Caleb, you are a, Caleb, you did this, Caleb, you are, and they hurl the accusation at me, <clears throat> I can say, no, I'm not, and I might be right, but here's the problem. Just as they m are likely not completely able to analyze what's wrong in my heart, I know enough about myself to know that I'm just as bad. I'm just as bad at analyzing my own heart as other people for the most part. And so I want to encourage you in this. I, 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 and I'm going, to, I'm going to give you actually a tool here. Because other people can misdiagnose me, and so too I can misdiagnose myself, we need someone who knows me intimately, someone who knows my very being, to actually help us navigate where the brokenness is in order to mend the relationship. And so here's where we're at. I have, I have grown to try to, when the accusation comes, instead of posturing up, I, I have really tried to say, you might be right. Even if the thing that they're accusing me of is abhorrent. Even if I think the thing that they're accusing me of is stupid. My initial response, instead of posturing up and trying to shield up, I, I want to just say, okay, it is possible because I know my own heart and I know my own capacities to do evil. And I know that I am not above what I'm being accused of. It doesn't mean that it defines me. It doesn't mean that they're even accurate. But instead of saying, no, I'm not, as if I'm the perfect judge of my own heart, here's the tool, and I'm going to give it to you. You might want to write this down. If you have a tattoo needle, this would be great. <laughs> you might want to put it in your phone. Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Psalm 139, 23 through 34. Yep, yeah, we got it up here. Okay. So in that moment, right, when the accusation comes, and again, I know it's painful, but instead of posturing up and doing self-defense, I think I want, I want to encourage you to say you might be right. There may be some truth to what you say. 
And instead of necessarily letting you judge me, right, they don't have the final word, but I also don't think I have the final word. I think God has the final word. And so my prayer is this. This is the tool. To pray Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Search me, God. Who am I appealing to in that prayer? The other person? My own self? Who, who am I making an appeal to? The one who knows me. And in fact, the, the, in previous portions of this psalm, it's, it's, there's, this inf- there's this famous portion where it says, um, uh, you've intricately woven me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Right? The, the, the author of Psalm 139 is saying, God, there's not, one, there's not one dark corner of my universe that you are not intimately familiar with. And so he says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me to the life everlasting. What would your life be like if when the accusation comes, instead of posturing up, instead of shielding up and doing self-defense, instead of trying to self-judge, we start with a prayer of examine, of self-examination. Lord, I'm angry right now. I don't like this person. I want to punch their face. They're saying these things at me. I'm not above it. That's a place of humility. And so, Lord, search my heart. Know me, God. See if there, Lord, is anything in me, any offensive way in me, and then lead me into the life everlasting. Mending broken relationships, for the most part, starts with self-examination. And the best, most accurate, most healing self-examination is one that stems from a relationship with the Father who made us, with our Creator who wove us together in our mother's womb. And then through that process of self-examine, Lord, search me and know me. See if there be any offensive way in me. Know my concerns. And lead me into life everlasting. If through that process the Lord reveals to us conviction, then we embrace it. And if the Lord says, you're completely guiltless in this area, then embrace that. I will say, I've never heard option two. (laughs) Not yet, anyways. Now, um, boy, I think that about wraps it up. You know, I just, I feel pretty good. Uh, I just wonder where we get the power to do this. I mean, this seems impossible to me. How about you? There was a thing? Was there something? Oh, 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 there was something really important that the entire sermon hinges on, right? And so, so let's do it. In the back of the seat in front of you, for those of you who are in the room, are communion elements. Would you take those out, please? For those of you that are home, if you would please gather the elements of bread and and wine or juice or whatever elements you have available to represent the body and blood of Christ. And for those of you that are in the room, if you would please uh, engage in the cellophane symphony and take out the bread, hold the bread in your hand. Then also, if you would uh, remove the the top so you can have the juice ready. I'm going to ask the band to come out. And then I'm going to read this text. 
In the very middle of the text that we just read in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took of the cup after the supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So we're just going to pause for a moment. And I'm going to lead us through the taking of the bread and the drinking of the juice. But as we do this, I would ask that as we take of communion and then as we sing one final song together, you would engage in the spiritual discipline of examine, self-examine. Lord, search me and know me. Know my concerns. If there be any offensive way in me, lead me into the path of eternal life. On that night, Jesus took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take and eat? In the same way, he took of the cup, saying, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you take and drink? Join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, we, in this moment, we remember your broken body and shed blood. We remember and reflect upon your grace and mercy, your profound love for us. And so, Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you convict us where there needs to be conviction. As we self-examine, Lord, would you search us and know us Lord, would you continue to empower us and shape us into the type of people who do not answer accusation with accusation, but rather self-reflection, knowing that we are not above anything. But because, Jesus, of your grace, your broken body and shed blood, we are welcome to your table. We are received and adopted into your family, that you love us, that you delight in us, that you call us your own. And in light of that truth, Lord, may we be a people who welcome everyone to our table. That we may be unified with you and with one another. Holding the same conviction, Jesus, that you are king above all. You have risen from the grave. You've conquered over Satan, sin, and death. And you bind us together. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.